word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the rain, the things it's going to do for our crops. I praise you for everything you've given us, the provisions that you've made for us in this life, the hope of the promises that you've given us, not just in terms of our salvation, but long-term, the things you're planning on doing to the earth, things you're planning on doing through the church before you do that, your kingdom. All of these promises are things that we live by, these are things that encourage us, and these are things we're looking forward to. I ask that you empower us to godly living, and I also pray that you give us discernment as we are yet again looking at another controversial subject re relating to the rapture. So I ask that you empower us to be able to do that, and yeah, guide us through your word. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're teaching on the rapture of the church still. For those of you who've been here for a hot minute, we have spent quite a bit of our study looking at this topic of imminence. So again, imminence is this idea that Jesus, we believe the New Testament teaches that Jesus could come back at any moment. What we mean by that is there's no sign which must take place before his coming. How do we answer the question of where we get that idea? Well, we look through the entirety of the New Testament. We come to the conclusion that we as Christians are to look for the coming of the Lord, that we are to eagerly expect him. And there's quite a bit of information there. So we spent weeks and weeks looking through these verses, doing a little synopsis of the book, looking at uh, the things pertaining to, yeah, just to the context, just to show us that we believe that the organic conclusion or the native meaning of the text is that we are to look for the coming of the Lord. And what's more is, on a very useful level, it's always linked to godly living in the present. Every time the coming of the Lord is mentioned in the New Testament. Now, because we don't live in a vacuum, we spent quite a bit of time looking at what I would consider to be the best objections to that particular viewpoint. Um, and we spent, like I said, we spent months just looking at this particular topic, going through all of the objections. Having done that, we came to a conclusion on why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Pre-tribulational meaning that Jesus will come before the tribulational period. Not necessarily that it starts the trib. We don't actually believe they're connected events. Uh, but what we do know is that we won't be here for the tribulational period. So that being said, why do we think that? Well, it concerns those in Christ. Which means, again, in Christ, if you were uh, following along, is a technical term for those within the church, within the body of Christ. So it's not concerning Israel a thousand years before Christ. That's not really what it's even making a promise to. It's making promises to those who are members of the church. What's more is that there is never, ever, ever, ever in all of the verses we looked at pertaining to the coming of the Lord a sign or an event which is stated to take place before Jesus could come again. So we believe there is nothing that we would consider to be a concrete start point that says, oh my gosh, we're about to be raptured, right? We don't have that in the New Testament. What's more is that not only do we not have a start date, we don't have, we do have an end date. So we know we will not go through not just the wrath of God, but the time of the wrath of God. We get that from Revelation 3 verse 10. Next, that being said, we have an understanding that the church is to wait for the coming of the Lord 
we know that we're not going to go through the tribulational period, so we know that it could happen at any moment. So that being said, we're looking for Jesus, not the Antichrist. Now, again, as I said before, we do not live in a vacuum. We don't live... Um, the body of Christ has a multitude of diverse opinions on the subject of the rapture. In terms of eschatology, which is the study of the end, I would say it's probably the most controversial topic right now, at least in America, because you go to a different country that might not be the actual topic that they would consider to be controversial. In America, it is, in my opinion. These are the other viewpoints we're going to be entertaining. Now, the purpose, and I need to emphasize this really carefully before we get into this, the purpose of us entertaining each of these viewpoints is to look at their biblical basis for why they believe what they believe. The next part is to look at whether or not, whether or not that's actually biblical, whether or not that works with the entirety of Scripture. And we're going to measure it according to Scripture. That's why we call, uh, that's why we call Scripture the canon of Scripture, because it's a word for measuring line. It's what we measure every viewpoint, every piece of theology, every preconception or preconceived notion we have about God. We measure it according to Scripture. Um, a lot of viewpoints come up relating to God that have nothing to do with Scripture. And Scripture is what we're supposed to be conforming our minds to. So that being said, we're going to be starting, as we did last week, on the post-tribulation rapture. Now, the basis of this viewpoint is this. They essentially believe in a lot of similar things that we believe. I'm just going to kind of monologue about this a little bit before we look into it. So they believe in a, um, they believe that there's going to be a tribulation, obviously. They believe there's going to be a tribulational period. They believe there's going to be a second coming. They believe there's going to be a rapture. They believe there's, for the most part, that there's going to be a thousand-year literal kingdom following the second coming. What they, we disagree with them on, and what they disagree with us on vehemently, is the idea of when that rapture takes place in the midst of those agreed-upon events. So there's kind of a lot of overlap in what we agree with. It's just the timing of the rapture that they have a problem with. So we're going to be looking at why they think the rapture happens at the end, and we kind of already spoiled that when we looked at the differences between the rapture and the second coming in an earlier lesson. So, a few things. Um, initial thoughts going in, and we, we talked about this last week. We need to be careful when we're analyzing their position. It's, you can't truly understand the legitimacy of an alternative viewpoint until you understand why they believe that particular viewpoint. Um, and as we saw last week, which we're going to be getting into a little bit in terms of review today, uh, we, ca we already see gloomy, or not gloomy, massive problems in just John 14 verses 1 through 3. Um, once we understand what they believe, we need to understand the evidence of what they believe and then weigh their theological positions according to Scripture. So that being said, the most important part of any study about alternative viewpoints, in my opinion, is how they handle our three verses. So what are these three verses? Well, John 14 tells us that Jesus promises to go to the Father's house. But not just to go to the Father's house, but to make dwelling places for us. We looked at the Greek. It's actually a term for temporary dwelling places. It's not like a permanent 
you're going to live in heaven for the rest of eternity. This is your spot. We understand it's a temporary dwelling place, which makes sense because in Revelation 19, the saints come with Jesus back to the earth where he rules for a thousand years. So we understand that's not our ultimate resting place. But what's more is within that verse, he promises not only, it's kind of like an if-then statement. If I go to the Father's house, which he did, we already know that's been completed, then I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It says, and I actually have it right here, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, done, game, set, match, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. So that's the basic gist of John 14. That's where we kind of get this promise that he's going to prepare a place for us. What's more, in 1 Thessalonians, we actually learn of kind of the order of the events. We learn about the shout, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive and remain, okay, well, this is kind of amazing. There are going to be people who are alive who are raptured at the same time as those dead in Christ. We'll be caught up together with the Lord. Okay, well, we learned quite a bit about that. What do we learn in 1 Corinthians? That's wrong. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 54. We'll have to fix that. And by that, I mean, I'll forget and we'll see it again next week. But um, what do we learn there? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. And we see that starting in verses 20 through 23, where we get this really good idea of the fact that Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. And because of his resurrection, we can then count on our future resurrections. But what we learn in these verses is that it's going to happen in a moment, in a fraction of a moment. This is going to be a very fast resurrection. And that makes perfect sense with what we see later on. So the question of the legitimacy of a viewpoint on the rapture is how they handle these verses. What do they think these mean? Because they all believe in a rapture. Every single eschatological viewpoint believes in some version of a rapture. If you are a pre-trib, you believe it happens before the tribulation. If you believe you're mid-trib, it happens at the midpoint. There are people that go just beyond the midpoint. There are people that go at roughly three-quarters of the way through the trib, at the end of the trib. Um, people believe that there's a partial rapture, that only people who are... Uh, being godly at the point of the rapture are actually going to be raptured. All the ungodly believers aren't, um, which is ridiculous. It has no grounding in scripture. So anyway, that being said, last week, what we looked at is how these different viewpoints, and we looked through many quotes. Most of this is going to be looking through quotes, just analyzing what they actually say. Um, the two main people we're looking at for post-tribulationalism are Douglas Moo, Dr. D Douglas Moo, and... Uh, Robert Gundry, because these two are the people that most of the other teachers get their sources from. So a lot like John Piper, a lot of these other post-tribulationalists who are really popular, they will just quote these people. So we're kind of uh, flushing out the middleman, so to speak, and we're just looking directly at the people that believe these things. So we spent quite a bit of time looking at what they believe about John chapter 3, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But the biggest thing to note, and you're going to see this, at, at, and I shouldn't say any, but every single post-tribulationalist I've looked at regarding this verse, 
they don't know how to deal with the idea of the dwelling places. So what they'll say, just I'm just going to summarize because we read about six slides last week that pertain to this. Basically, what they'll say is, all right, so do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If I were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So what they say is that he's going to the Father's house to make dwelling places. And what he's going to do is he's going to come receive Christians to himself and then come back to the earth. Like, and that sounds ridiculous the way that I'm presenting it, but that's exactly what they said. They spent a little bit longer wording it. And we, we read that last week where they had several, um, several quotes pertaining to that, but that's the ultimate conclusion that they're coming to. Sure. Some do, some don't. Um, and yes, we're actually going to get to that point because if that happens, if uh, the question that Nancy asked was, do they teach about the Bema Seed, which we'll look at a little bit later. Um, because when do we think the Bema Seed happens? It happens when we're in heaven, in the Father's house. The reason it has to happen that way is because the wording of Revelation 19 actually shows Christians rewarded coming back with Christ. So at some point during that time period, we have to expect the Bema Seed judgment to take place. Um, Bema Seed judgment is this judgment just for Christians, specifically for us to measure the validity of our works. To measure, was this done for God out of unselfish motives, or was this done for, for yourself? Um, it measures whether, it doesn't determine whether or not we're saved or not. It determines whether or not we get additional degrees of reward in the coming kingdom, additional degrees of authority in that kingdom. Were you a good steward over what I gave you? That's really the question that's being answered. Um, but to answer that question, if the rapture is this thing that happens when Jesus comes in the clouds, we go to him and then we come right back down, that doesn't really leave any time for a beam of seat judgment. So to answer the question, as I mean, I, spoiling the fun a little bit there, but that's essentially one of the glaring problems of post-tribulationalism. If, does that answer the question? Okay. So the biggest thing about John 14, and I'm just going to read a little bit of this quote here. He says in the farewell discourse to John's gospel, Jesus seeks to prepare his disciples for the time of his physical absence from them. In John 14, Jesus encourages them by asserting that his going to the Father for the purpose of preparing a place for, for them in the Father's many dwelling places, and that he will come again and receive them to himself, in order that where I am, you may be also. It is almost certain that the latter verse describes the second advent and rapture. Oops. I'm sorry. Anyway, he, he says, but there is no indication in the text that any coming other than the post-tribulational one described elsewhere in the New Testament is in Jesus' mind. The fact that believers at a, in a post-tribulational rapture would rise to meet the Lord in the air only to return immediately to the earth with him creates no difficulty, for the text does not state that believers will go directly to heaven. Okay. Did they not read the verse? Um, so... This is kind of the thought process, and you can tell, and this is something you're going to see with every other viewpoint that we're looking at, you can tell when they branch off away from Scripture to support a presupposition. 
So when he says that there's nothing in here that would lead him to believe that we were going to heaven, what are you ignoring? You're ignoring the fact that Jesus has promised the first part of his if-then clause begins with, if I go to prepare a place for you, where is he going? He's going to the Father's house. Is that on earth? No, it's in heaven. If I go to heaven to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. It's not then, if I go to prepare irrelevant dwelling places that have nothing to do or pertain with you, then I will come again and take you somewhere else. That's not what he's saying there. That abuses even the grammar of the statement that we're reading. So again, you can see where they kind of branch away from the basic understanding of John 14 verses one through three. So that's just something that we kind of have to keep in mind. And it's kind of funny. He actually quotes Gundry in the following verse, which is hilarious um, because I didn't realize that until after I had read through his paper. Um, But again, I'm just wanting to present this as they are arguing. So again, Douglas Moo is brilliant. He's a brilliant teacher. And this is actually written in a book, three different views on the rapture. And because I don't believe in buying anything, I found it online. Um, But it's just something to kind of keep in mind. As we're looking at these things, you're going to see issues and just, just make a note of them when you see them. There may be a way to reconcile the issues if you look a little bit deeper. I have not seen reconciliation on John 14 in pertaining to this idea of these dwelling places. Nobody in post-tribulationalism has a good answer for why Jesus is going to make these dwelling places in heaven. They, they just, they don't have an answer for that. Some will spiritualize and say, well, when, and they did this for years, um, where they'll say, well, if you, uh, if you die, Jesus promises that he's actually going to come and take you to heaven, um, which that sounds nice, but that's not promised here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, you could make an argument for how to interact with people at a funeral and give them hope by talking about the rapture, but that has nothing to do with the context of John 14 because it's not talking about those who are dead specifically, although we actually see that in First Thessalonians 4, but it's not talking about what happens when they die. It's what, talk, what happens after they've already been dead and Jesus resurrects them, gives them new bodies, and takes them to the Father's house. That's the promise here. And so what they're basically arguing in this verse, which we're going to be looking at a little bit more in detail later, is that all he's promising is that they'll receive, will be received to himself, that we will be received to Jesus. And if Jesus is coming to the earth, then, well, that makes perfect sense. We have no reason not to trust that. And what they also suggest is that, well, when he talks about the coming of the Lord, the only other coming that's mentioned is Matthew 24 and Luke where he's talking about his second advent. So why would Jesus be talking about a different coming? How do we come to the conclusion that this is a different coming? This is just a quiz question, because we we did the differences between the rapture and the second coming before. So what about John 14 is absolutely distinct from Matthew 24 or from Revelation 19? What's the main glaring difference? The main glaring difference is that he's promising to take us to heaven. Jesus comes from heaven going to the earth in Revelation 19. There is no pausing in the air that's talked about in Revelation 19 where the saints go up to him. 
we are coming, it's worded that we are coming down with him. Now, even if you were to argue that Revelation 19 um, abstains from talking about us being caught up before we went down, it still doesn't answer the question about why on earth is he making temporary dwelling places in heaven? Again, what we looked at this idea of a Jewish rapture or a Jewish rapture, a Jewish wedding, right? Where the husband would take the bride to the place he prepared for them and his father's house. That's something we looked at. Again, we, we made this example before. When we look at the word kingdom in the New Testament, we don't just impute whatever word or meaning we want to into that. We look at how that word actually would have held meaning for the Jews. And it held a lot of meaning for the Jews. The idea of a wedding is a very Jewish idea. Jesus wasn't reaching 2,000 years into the future and taking a Judeo-Christian wedding from the, I don't know, the Christianese culture of the U.S. to determine what he thought a wedding should be. He was looking at the Jews because he was talking to the Jews. So, again, we didn't use that as our primary argument for the rapture. We didn't, I mean, I think we went 65 weeks before we even talked about the Jewish wedding idea. But just so you're aware, any time he talks about a wedding in the New Testament, that's what he would be referring to. Because who is he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to people that had connections with them. So anyway, that was the longest summary on one slide we've ever done. But just kind of keep that in mind as we're moving forward. That's the large, like, big picture that I have a problem with. At, and perhaps they have a really good answer for that. I haven't found one yet. Somebody's listening online and they, they disagree with me. They're welcome to comment. I'd love to hear it. That being said, where we ended last week was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn there. Let's do that as a group. Now, I think it should be abundantly clear about why we chose to go so slowly through a lot of the arguments and positions that we went through. I'm not bringing up a hundred slides to disagree with every single one of their point. A large, a large amount of what we've done has already been in the works. That's stuff that we already put the time into in the past. So things like arguing the second coming from the rapture and spending an hour and a half doing that probably in totality. We're, we're not going to do that again. We will redirect back to that slide, but we're not going to put the work in a second time. Um, because I felt like it would be more efficient to be able to interact with these quotes as we're doing it in real time. So just so you're aware, that's kind of the gist of what we're trying to accomplish as we look at these different viewpoints. So let's read this quote and then we'll move forward. So this is Douglas Moo. Again, this is a post-tribulationalist who's arguing in a paper for the legitimacy of the post-tribulation rapture. That's what he's trying to accomplish. In the midst of a book that also talks about, I believe, uh, Mid-Trib by Gleason Archer um, and uh, Pre-Trib. And I forget who did the Pre-Trib side of it. But that's what he's trying to argue. This is high scholarship. This is a long, I mean, you think I'm long-winded. He spends 50 pages or so just arguing for one position. In, in any case, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is Paul's purpose to indicate how living saints can enter the kingdom at the last day. Even though flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. To do so, 
He affirms that while we, believers in general, will not all die, we will be changed, whether living or dead. That Paul calls a transformation a mystery indicates nothing about who will participate in it, only that it was not clearly revealed previously. We're going to pause there. What point is he trying to make there? He's trying to assert the idea that the idea of a mystery is not pertaining to the church itself. Because what do you believe in post, what do you, what line do you have to blend in post-tribulationalism in order to get the church into the tribulational period? You have to blend the line between the church and Israel. So whenever they say something like that, he's isolating it to this particular verse and being overly specific for that very reason. He's trying to blend those lines. Um, because we believe the church is not something that was revealed about in the Old Testament, which would make it a mystery. He doesn't believe that. So anyway, moving on. Um, and in quote, quoting an Old Testament verse, Isaiah 25, 8, with reference to the resurrection of church saints in this context, Paul may, careful about the maze, may be indicating his belief that the Old Testament saints participate in this change. He's not. (laughs) He's not at all. We'll talk about that later. Further indication that this transformation involves Old Testament saints and cannot thereby be limited to a separate event for the church saints is found in the reference to the last trumpet. As the commentators note, this does not refer to the last in a series, necessarily, but to the trumpet that ushers in the last day. And this trumpet is a feature of the Old Testament day of the Lord, at which time the Jewish nation experiences final salvation and judgment. The Isianic reference, in particular suggestive, inasmuch as the sounding of the great trumpet is associated with the gathering of the Israelites one by one, this is probably a description of the gathering of Israel in preparation for the entrance into the Millennial Kingdom, an event which is always post-tribulational. Furthermore, it is probable that the trumpet here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the same as the one mentioned in Matthew 24. For when one finds only one reference throughout Jesus' teaching to a trumpet, and it is associated with the gathering of the elect, when he mentions a trumpet, the parallel can hardly be ignored. Just going to pause there. We're going to talk so much about trumpets, you're going to hate the subject by the time we're done with this. Um, And I apologize in advance, um, because this is the argument that almost everybody's going to be making, is this idea that, well... The last trumpet has to be the same event, even if they're described completely differently in non-conforming uh, <laughs> manner that can't be reconciled with each other. It must be the same event because there's a trumpet. So anyway, we'll look at the commonality of the idea of a trumpet for different events in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and even Rome, for that matter. So in any case... Um, Thus, while dogmatism is unwarranted, again, he's not, it's, yeah, we'll get into that in a second. The reference to the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians would suggest that the transformation Paul describes takes place at the time when the Jewish nation experiences his eschatological salvation after the tribulation. So what you'll see in higher scholarship is they do a lot of, it may or may be permitted that this might, like they'll use permissive language 
to leave wiggle room in case something comes out later that proves them wrong, which I'm, I'm not saying this is a bad idea, but you'll notice that he'll speak in absolute terms until the very end. And then he'll say, well, dogmatism really shouldn't, isn't warranted. And they'll say these things. Um, so anyway, just kind of keep that in mind. Like as we're looking at these people, especially Douglas Moo, he's a little bit better than Rob Gundry about it. Um, when he's not saying something that is obvious that he can absolutely prove via the text, he is not affirming dogmatism in that particular area. Bob Gundry doesn't really care. He will, he will do it all day long. And I like some of the stuff from Bob Gundry too that has nothing to do with the subject. So that being said, he actually continues and he says the third principal text relating to the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18. Let's turn there and we'll, we'll look at that as we're moving forward. Because again, what we're trying to accomplish right now is looking at how they interact with these particular viewpoints. In order to try to reconcile 1 Corinthians and try to make that actually be talking about Matthew 24 and Revelation 19, he had to do a lot of things and make a lot of assumptions. He had to assume that it's talking about an Old Testament uh, transformation of saints, which is talked about in, a couple times in Isaiah, but mostly in uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. That's what he's trying to relate to it, because if he can try to do that, then he can make it a post-tribulational event, because we understand that is a post-tribulation event. So he says... Again, this is Douglas Moo. This is going to be a few, few slides long. He says, The third principal text relating to the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Clearly, Paul is here seeking to comfort the Thessalonian believers over the death of believers. Why were they concerned? Certainly, it could not have been because they did not know of the resurrection of the dead. Doctrine was central to Paul's teaching. 1 Corinthians 15. Although, I think his timeline is a little bit messed up. And he assumes it in his discussion here. Since Paul's emphasis in the passage is on the fact that the dead in Christ will fully participate in the blessing of the parousia, the coming is what that means. Um, it is probable that the Thessalonians feared that their dead would not have the same advantages as the survivors when the Lord came. It is important to note uh, that the comfort Paul offers does not have to do primarily with the position of living believers, nor does he suggest that the exemption from the tribulation is a source of this comfort. Did you catch that? He suggested, yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll look at that later. Um, his encouragement lies solely in the fact that all believers, living or dead, will participate in the glorious event of the parousia, and they will, as a result, always be with the Lord. That such a hope, if it has included a previous experience in the Great Tribulation, would not be a comfort to believers is manifestly untrue. For, in fact, these Thessalonians had already experienced very difficult times. They had been converted in Great Tribulation, 1 verse 6. Oh, man. Um, and we'll st we're still undergoing such tribulation. Nowhere does Paul seek to comfort Christians by promising them exemption from tribulation. Are there any indications in this description of the rapture and the accompanying resurrection as to when it takes place with reference to the trip? The failure of Paul to mention preliminary signs is hardly relevant for 
there is no reason for him to include them here in light of the extreme sufferings that the Thessalonians were already experiencing. We're going to pause here because there's so much that we can comment on. So let's talk about the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, how old was the church at Thessalonica? It's very young. When this letter was written, most scholars agree this was written within six months of him starting the church. A uh, couple things to note about this verse. What are the verses that he mentions? He mentions in chapter 1, um, verse 6, where it says that you also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Lord. He's linking that to the actual great tribulation. He's suggesting that since he's already mentioning that these believers will have gone through tribulation, it makes sense. Anyway, we're going to keep looking through this. Um, He talks about verse 6, but he leaves out verse 10. What does verse 10 say? It says that to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who does what? Rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, the way that they reconcile that verse is they try to make a distinction between the wrath of God prior to the second advent and the wrath of God post second advent, where they're saying he's actually rescuing us from a specific kind of his wrath. So they get really particular about the wording without having a biblical warrant to actually give them the empowerment to actually do that. So just kind of keep that in mind. That's what he's kind of doing with this verse. Now, the next verse he mentions is chapter 3, verse 3. What, how does he use that verse? Let's look at it really quick. He says, For in fact, these Thessalonians had already experienced very difficult times. They had been converted in great tribulation and were still undergoing such tribulation. Nowhere does Paul seek to comfort Christians by promising them exemption from the tribulation. Okay. Except that he does it twice. Okay? Um, yeah, if you ignore the two times. So, Again, every, let's just do this because this is kind of important. Um, what is the context of First Thessalonians? Well, he's answering many questions. Let's just read the last verse of every chapter, getting us to chapter five. It says in verse 10, we'll read it again. And to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Uh, chapter two, verse uh, 19 through 20. It says, for who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. It says in verse 13 of chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Are you seeing a pattern here? Looking through 1 Thessalonians, is the coming of the Lord one of the main topics under consideration in this verse. Well, what does he say in chapter 5? We'll read verses 1 through 8 really quickly. Um, having just described the rapture, everybody agrees that First Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 is talking about the rapture. So having just described that, he starts with the word now. What does that word tell us if you look at the Greek? Do you guys remember back when we talked about it? It's when he's starting a new subject, not a completely distinct subject, a subject that pertains to the original one, but it is a distinct subject. It's related, but it's distinct. So anyway, he says, Now, having just spoken of the rapture in the context, as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. 
For while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the second advent, the day of the Lord. He's talking about it coming like a thief. We see that same uh, motif back in Matthew 24. He says, but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Okay, so he's not just talking about saved versus unsaved. He's talking about aware versus unaware. That's the context we're looking at. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet and the hope of salvation. Why? For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, aware or unaware, um, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are also doing. So that's the basic uh, layout of First Thessalonians. We're actually going to interact with chapter 5 in a minute. And by a minute, I mean in it probably minutes calculated to exactly seven days because we're almost out of time. But that's the basics of kind of what they're looking at as they're looking at this verse. Uh, we're going to, let's finish this quote before we have to stop a quote midstream. He says, he hardly needed to warn them of this. Hardly needed to warn them of what? Of the extreme sufferings that they were already experiencing is what he's talking about. He focuses exclusively on the great hope lying at the end of all earthly distresses. On the other hand, there are four indications that favor a post-trib setting. First, while little can be defined or definitely concluded from Paul's reference to a word from the Lord in verse 15, uh, there are suggestive parallels between the parousia in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the parousia described by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Both refer to a heavenly event with angels, archangel in 1 Thessalonians 4, clouds, a trumpet, and the gathering of believers. And while each of these texts mentions details not found in the other, none of the details are contradictory. However, if the parousia of the Olivet Discourse, as we have already noted, is post-tribulational, a second indication that the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4 may be post-tribulational is found in reference to the trumpet, which we saw in discussing 1 Corinthians 15. It's an established symbol for the ushering in the time of Israel's salvation and judgment, and in keeping with Paul's allusion to the trumpet of God, it should be noted that Zechariah 9 verse 14 specifically says that the Lord will sound the trumpet. Third, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 16 features a number of elements closely parallel to Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. The description of the dead as sleepers, the presence of Michael, the archangel, and of course, a resurrection and deliverance of God's people. But Daniel passage definitely places the resurrection after the tribulation. Fourth, the word used by Paul to describe the meeting between the living saints of the Lord and the air occurs in reference to the visit of dignitaries and generally implies that the delegation accompanies the dignitary back to the delegation's point of origin. That's really important. We're going to interact with that a little bit later. And the two occurrences of this term in the New Testament seem to bear this meaning. This would suggest that the saints, 
after meeting the Lord in the air, accompany him back to earth instead of going with him to heaven. However, this argument can be given little weight. The word does not have to bear this technical meaning, nor is it certain that the return to the point of origin must be immediate. Catch what he did there? He's almost suggesting that, well, we might go back to the Father's house, but it might be a thousand years or two thousand years after, right? So the biggest thing is you're going to see, and we're, I'm going to post quotes on it as we look at it a little bit later, but this idea of the delegation, this is the argument, the mainstream argument for why um, John is not actually talking about going back to the Father's house. The suggestion is that we go up and we escort him back to earth. But he kind of gives the cat away, or the cat comes out of the bag, so to speak, in the way he chooses to word this. Because notice, he says that, fourth, the word used by Paul to describe the meeting between the living saints of the Lord in the air occurs in references to the visit of dignitaries and generally implies, okay, so there are alternative viewpoints. It doesn't have to. It doesn't necessitate it. It could imply it. We don't base our theology on things that could be implied in the text. We base our theology on what's obvious in the text. That's why we talk about the native meaning of the text. The, um, yeah, the obvious stuff. So we're pretty much out of time. We'll look, we'll finish this quote a little bit next week and then go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But just kind of keep in mind, that's the, that's the main thrust of where we're going right now, is we're going to be looking at their best arguments. And these are the best ones. And we're going to be weighing them according to scripture. Um, But yeah, again, can't emphasize it more. We don't make theology on what might be implied in a text. Because not only are we not reading the text verbatim, word for word, now we're actually reading into the text what we think the writer might have wanted to imply, which is grounds for speculation and then makes us the people that are the authority and no longer the word of God. So we'll look at that a little bit later. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the promises we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 and 5, verse 9. This idea that we're not going to be present for the tribulational period, that you have given us a divine exemption. And more specifically, we're grateful for the fact that we don't gain this exemption from anything we did ourselves. This exemption comes specifically by your blood shed on the cross in our place. When you died as our substitute, taking upon our sins on your shoulders, on your innocent shoulders. Lord, I thank you for everything you've done. I ask that you help, help us to really focus on your sacrifice for us as we're moving forward. Give us that as a motivating factor for godly living as we try to work out the old man, as we try to walk in light, as we try to stay away from sin, and be an example to the people that are younger than us in the faith, the people that are older than us, whatever the case may be, that you would empower us to live a godly life. Um, We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.